Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, The Coast Guard's Challenges to Enhancing U.S. Maritime Security. Please welcome James DePayne, Policy Analyst at the Heritage Foundation Center for National Defense. Hi, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Heritage for this important discussion on the U.S. Coast Guard. I'm, as the voice of God just said, I'm James DePayne. I'm a policy analyst here in our Center for National Defense. And when I picked up this portfolio a few years ago, I made the mistake that a lot of people can make when, when they think about the Coast Guard. And you think of them kind of in the terms of basically the lifeguards that fly helicopters. But over the, the years of studying them, they do oh so much more than that. And really, there are a few things that they don't actually do if you look at all of their uh, authorities and, and capabilities. So for this great discussion today, we are very lucky to be joined by the Vice Commandant of the Coast Guard, Admiral Steve Poulin, uh, graduate of the Coast Guard Academy, his last operational command was of the Atlantic area, in addition to other flag officer roles he's had, and is a dual specialty response ashore officer and lawyer. So very lucky to have the Admiral. Would you like to join me, sir? So Admiral, would love to kick off this discussion with something that uh, Commandant Fagan said at the State of the Coast Guard address a few years ago. And this is basically that the Coast Guard has never been in greater demand around the world than it is today. And this is because of those capabilities and authorities you guys have. From your perspective, what are the forces that are driving this demand? And what are the key lines of effort for the service to continue to secure America's interests going forward? Oh, I'm happy to talk about that. It's a, it's a great question. Um, I, I've never seen the demand for Coast Guard service globally in my 40 years of service as I, I, I see it today. And I think it's driven by a lot of different factors. Primarily, it's where partner nations see their greatest national security threats. And when you talk to them, they talk about protecting their own, so their own sovereignty, their own sovereign rights, maintaining presence off their own coasts. And when they look at specific threats, they look at things like illegal fishing. They look at things like transnational organized crime. They look at uh, the challenges of uh, responding to natural or man-made disasters. So when you talk to them about their greatest national security challenges, those things sound very much like our Coast Guard missions. And we have unique assets, we have unique partnerships, and we have unique authorities that I think allow us to meet those partner nations uh, where they see a great, greater need. And so we've deployed Coast Guard cutters uh, in the Gulf of Guinea. We've deployed them over into the Black Sea. We just had a cutter that was up uh, in the Baltics. Of course, we have a lot of cutters who maintain a presence in the Indo-Pacific region, uh, in addition to the Arctic and Antarctic. So uh, we are present in all the combatant commands, and uh, we do as much as we can to support uh, our partner nations around the globe. Um, it is a balance, though. We have missions within the Western Hemisphere that are priority missions. We have to continue to do those fundamental things. We have to be brilliant on the basics here at home as we look to support engagements internationally. Yeah, thank you, sir. And a quick, a quick housekeeping note before we, we continue the conversation. So the Admiral and I will talk for about 25 to 30 minutes in, in a kind of Q&A. 
And then we want to involve all of you in the conversation. So for those online, feel free to submit the questions online. And for all of our guests joining in the audience, uh, feel free to flag down one of our interns and they'll get you a, a note card to, to write the question. So, sir, you mentioned illegal fishing, and I would love to talk a little bit about China and the great power competition we find ourselves in. So, illegal fishing has basically passed piracy as the number one maritime threat to, to maritime governance. Can you discuss how China uses illegal, because when some people hear illegal fishing, they think a couple guys on a lake taking a few extra fish without a license, but it's much more than that when the Chinese do it. Could you elaborate on that? And Sure. I think that the studies will tell you that about 93% uh, of global fish stocks are overfished or depleted. Um, and that dynamic is happening in the wake of an increase in global demand for protein. And most countries rely on fish for their source of protein. Uh, so when you talk about dwindling fish stocks, growing demand, and then you also talk about increased migration of different fish stocks, um, there's the challenge. And um, our focus is providing domain awareness, good maritime governance, and upholding the rule of law so that we can have sustainable fisheries. And this is a global issue. This is a global issue, and what we're trying to do is build awareness and uh, work with different partner nations. You see us do this quite a bit in the Oceania region in particular, uh, but we do it around, around the globe. Uh, we just had a Coast Guard cutter working off the coast of South America with uh, Brazil, Argentina, and some other countries and it was largely focused on illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing. Um, and I think if, if we attack that issue, we raise awareness, um, I think that not only has benefits for sustaining fish stocks, but I think it also provides a better um, rules-based order for the conduct of, of legitimate maritime activity. When you interact with, with partners and allies around the world specifically on this issue, what, what is it that they ask for the most? Is it additional training? Is it increased Coast Guard presence to help them patrol their waters? I, I, it's a mix of both. Um, so where we can provide a cutter to do joint patrols with a partner nation, we will do that. Uh, we often ask them to provide a ship rider on our Coast Guard cutters, which expands our authority because after all, we're talking about enforcement of their EEZ and this gives us extended authorities. Um, but it always, it doesn't necessarily always have to be a Coast Guard cutter. We are using our deployable specialized forces and other small teams to go out and do mobile training. It really depends on what the host nation desires most. And um, each host nation is a little bit different. They have different and unique needs. Some it's uh, building a Coast Guard. Uh, others it's just providing some advanced boarding capability. Uh, others it's information exchange to expand maritime domain awareness. So it, I, I think it runs a spectrum of issues that we can provide in a unique and different way as part of the joint force. And within, speaking specifically within US EEZs, are there any areas specifically for this problem that could use increased Coast Guard presence that you're currently unable to, unable to cover? Well, we're, we're building Coast Guard capability. That's one of the reasons why we've embarked on the largest shipbuilding program since World War II over the Coast Guard. We're uh, almost complete with a program of record for the National Security Cutter. Uh, we're building the offshore patrol cutter, and I think these are going to be game changers for the Coast Guard. What we're doing is we're adding incredible capability uh, for the Coast Guard to ensure maritime governance uh, within our own uh, marine environment. Uh, and that marine environment extends to the Arctic, 
uh, to our interest down in the Antarctic and obviously to our own exclusive economic zones. Yeah, speaking of speaking of the the shipbuilding and recapitalization, so the the medium medium endurance cutters have been in service for a long time and are still a, a pretty strong workhorse for for the service. There have been a lot of delays with the offshore patrol cutter program. How how is that affecting the service as those ships continue to do a lot of heavy lifting with with providing that security? No, that's a really insightful question. So uh, the first thing I should say is we have incredible crews that are maintaining these 50-year-old assets, some 35 years plus, others 50 years plus. I note that my first assignment was on the Coast Guard Cutter Dauntless out of Miami Beach, Florida. Dauntless is still sailing today, and I thought it was old when I was on it uh, those many years ago. Uh, but our crews are doing an incredible job maintaining uh, those assets so they can continue to produce operational effects. But they're old. They're tired. Um, and what we're seeing is uh, increased challenges in sustaining those assets despite our best efforts. So what we have to do is we have to move these offshore patrol cutters as quickly as possible uh, into the fleet and um, just continue to build that capability uh, for the Coast Guard. Uh, we, we talked earlier about the demands on the Coast Guard. Those are demands uh, externally overseas, but there are also a lot of demands on the Coast Guard here domestically. You know, we've got a changing uh, maritime environment, and that requires us to be at our best. And the only way we could be at our best is if we have those new assets that produce greater capabilities for our Coast Guard. And, and we need to give our young Coast Guard women and men the tools that they need to do for the job that we ask of them. And those look like national security cutters, offshore patrol cutters, fast response cutters, and polar security cutters, and our waterways commerce cutter that we're building to maintain the inland waterways. Yeah, thank you. So you, you just mentioned polar security cutter, and that's the program I, I wanted to discuss next. So the U.S. has interest in, in both poles, basically, up in, up in the Arctic, and then also important interests to support down in the Antarctic. Could you discuss, so uh, for quick, quick set, basically background for everyone, the, we currently have one medium icebreaker, the Healy, Healy. and one heavy icebreaker, the Polar, the Polar Star, who just wrapped up a, a mission down to Antarctica sure. recently. Um, both of those, well, the Polar Star was commissioned in the 70s, so slightly, slightly old. Um, could you talk about the importance of the Polar Security Cutter Program and what interests in the high latitudes it's designed to support through, through the presence of icebreakers? And also, um, if there's a plan to kind of cover the capability gap that we currently find ourselves with, with the aging Polar Star and the, the medium Healy. Yeah, no, uh, presence matters. And our ability to protect our interest in both uh, the high latitudes north and south means that we have to have Coast Guard capability. Uh, and that's what the Polar Security Cutter is going to provide, the ability to work both uh, in the Arctic and in the Antarctic, um, because presence does matter. And if you look at the Arctic in particular, it, it is probably a one area where you see global strategic competition most visibly. Uh, there's a lot of interest in the Arctic, a lot of different nations, including non-Arctic nations, uh, rare earth minerals, uh, migrating fish stocks, open navigation. So there is just a huge interest in the Arctic. And, and what we have to do is ensure that that rule-based order extends to the Arctic. We have to ensure that we can protect our sovereign rights and our sovereignty in the Arctic as well. 
And to do that, you need presence. And so to get presence, we need to build these polar security cutters. Um, at the same time, uh, we need to look at how we recapitalize Healy eventually, Healy being the only medium endurance uh, or medium icebreaker. So uh, we're having some very preliminary conversations about what an Arctic security cutter may look like. But our emphasis right now is on uh, the heavy icebreakers, getting those constructed down at Bollinger, Mississippi, and getting those into the fleet as, as soon as possible. Um, and then I, I don't want to discount what we have to do to focus on domestic icebreaking as well. We obviously we, we think icebreaking in terms of the high latitudes, and that's important. Uh, but we also have a domestic icebreaking mission that we're focused on as well because uh, we've got to keep goods and commerce flowing in those tough winter months. Yeah, thank you. One, one question about the, the transition to the Arctic security cutter after the polar security cutter. Have there been any discussions internally about just continuing the polar security cutter line up through the eventual goal of, of six versus transitioning to Yeah, the, well, right now I think we're focused on uh, getting uh, the polar security cutters that we've contracted through Bollinger, Mississippi. And then we'll, we'll have some discussions about what the right fleet mix looks like um, into the future. Um, but I think the emphasis has got to be on, on getting the polar security cutter into the fleet as, as soon as we can. Uh, you may have noticed that in the uh, FY24 budget that was just submitted, there's uh, money in there, $150 million, for a commercially available icebreaker for the Coast Guard. So that's an opportunity for us to maybe, in a, in a more near term, bring a medium cutter, uh, medium icebreaker in, into the fleet. That's, that's not a gap filler. That's not a bridging strategy. That would just give us enhanced capability uh, sooner now than a recap for Coast Guard Cutter Healy down the road. Yeah, thank you. And want to transition a little bit from, from platforms, which are sometimes easy to, to talk about because you can count them and, and it, they're neatly organized into um, kind of programs. But we'd love to talk about the people and personnel for the Coast Guard. And you kind of mentioned this, that having uh, young Coast Guard personnel on, on these older platforms is not really what they, what they might deserve. And the, the service is famous for doing a lot with, with a little, but we could probably do a little better for, for them. So with, with recruitment currently, it seems that all of the services are struggling with a tough recruiting environment, struggling to get enough young people to join up. How is the Coast Guard tackling this problem, and what are the kind of key lines of effort to try to make sure that we're bringing talented young people that, that we need into the service? Well, we are bringing talented young people into the Coast Guard. Uh, it, every new recruit that I meet or new officer I meet, I'm just inspired by their commitment, their level of dedication, um, their insight, their thoughtfulness. I mean, we have in, incredible talent. But you're right. We are in a quest for talent, and it's a, a competitive environment. Um, recruiting is a challenge. Uh, it's been a challenge for us for a couple of years. We're similarly positioned to the other services. Uh, right now, uh, we're carrying about a 10% gap in our enlisted workforce uh, and a smaller gap, but a gap nonetheless, in our, in our officer corps. And we're, we're redoubling our efforts to try and shore up those gaps. It's going to take us a while to build, uh, a, a, uh, to, to fill those uh, gaps. Uh, so what we're doing is um, we're expanding the number of recruiters we have out in the field. We're opening new recruiting offices. We just launched a rebranding campaign. Uh, to talk about the Coast Guard in a new and unique and different way, maybe in a way that resonates with younger people. The other thing we're trying to do is break down barriers to service. Um, we had higher ASVAB scores 
than the other services. Our medical standards were a little bit tighter. Now we've normalized those with the other services. Um, and, and I think that's helpful uh, for us as well. And so we want to break down barriers uh, to entry across, um, across the board. The other thing we're doing is we're trying to expand our lateral entry program. Uh, so maybe creating opportunities for people that have been in the private sector that have a particular skill set. Think of electricians, think of culinary specialists, cooks, and things like that that may want to come in laterally, go to boot camp, but then do an abbreviated school and then come in as a, as a more senior petty officer. So we're looking at ways to, to uh, fill the gaps through that lateral entry program. Uh, we're very much at the early stages of this. Um, we're seeing some progress. Uh, but I think we've got to be a little bit impatient with the progress because until we can fill uh, the gaps in the workforce, um, it's, it's going to continue to remain a challenge for us. Um, uh, I think we've got something special to offer, um, and uh, we just have to find out what resonates best with, with young people. We're, we're leveraging uh, social media more than we have as part of our recruiting campaigns. Uh, you probably have noticed you don't see big advertisements on the TV like you used to for the Coast Guard. You don't necessarily see a billboard when you're driving down the highway because that is not the way that younger people get their information. They get it through social media and, and other means. And so we're, we're in that space as well, trying to speak to them and, um, and, and share with them that the Coast Guard's an incredible opportunity to, to make a unique difference. Uh, I, I am surprised still uh, that I talk with a lot of people and, and they've gone into a different walk of life and I said, well, did you ever consider the Coast Guard? And they said, well, I didn't know the Coast Guard was an option. We want to make sure that everybody knows that the Coast Guard is an option and everybody has the ability to serve to their full potential in the organization. Uh, the other thing that we're doing is we're working on improving retention. Our retention rate is still pretty good, but we've seen a dip in the last couple of years, which is concerning for me. So retention rate is still high, but we've seen a drop, and uh, we've got to make sure that it doesn't drop further. So we're working hard to um, improve uh, the flexibility and for people to manage their careers. Uh, we're investing in Coast Guard centers of gravity so people can have stability in their career. Uh, moves are disruptive. Uh, you know, financially they're disruptive. They're disruptive to a spouse's employment. They're disruptive to kids' school. You certainly can't invest in a home. And so what we're trying to do is increase the opportunities to have stability for our workforce. And, and then lastly, we're trying to give people greater predictability in what their career path looks like. Uh, part of that is simply uh, doing a career guide, providing mentoring and outreach and somebody that they can talk to about the choices that they have to make as they navigate their Coast Guard career. Uh, we're, we're also investing in what we consider to be fundamental work-life programs. Uh, we're, deciding where we need to build Coast Guard housing, uh, where leased housing makes sense, and where people can live on the economy. And this is a discussion we've had with the other services. How do we, how do we address fundamental work-life challenges that our people have, especially now when we've seen uh, an increase in inflation? There's a quadrennial compensation review that's going on right now. Uh, we're very much part of that. Uh, we want to work with DOD to make sure that Coast Guard equities are addressed within the BAH and COLA calculations. You know, we are sort of uniquely positioned because we don't live on military bases for the most part. We live in coastal environments that tend to be fairly high cost. So how do you capture that in a uh, process that has really been built uh, for the larger military, not necessarily for the, 
for the Coast Guard. I, I, I think it's a great process. We just have to make sure that that process is more responsive and more agile, perhaps, than it's been in the past. So those are just a few things. So you mentioned retention has been fairly fairly stable. Are there any specific specialties where there's higher uh, incidence of people leaving leaving the service more than more than others, or is it kind of general across the board? Yeah. Well, let me let me be clear. Uh, I'm not declaring success on retention. Okay. Um, we need to continue to work on retaining uh, everybody in the Coast Guard who wants to serve. Um, so I. I I can't say specifically what specialties or competencies tend to uh, get out of the Coast Guard more than others. I'm sure we have that, that data, I just don't have it with me. Uh, but my focus is not on who's getting out. My focus is on what we can do to retain people, all people across all different ratings and, and specialties. I'm fully aware that there's a competitive market out there. So for example, as we build our cyber capability, there's a high demand there. Um, and we, we talked a lot about that. How do we make it an enriching and rewarding career for somebody who's coming into Coast Guard Cyber Command? And we're investing in the training, giving them this exquisite capability. Um, we, we've got to find a way uh, to retain those folks in the service who are highly skilled. And, and part of it, we have to leverage financial incentives. But I think the greater thing that we have to do is we have to make sure that people understand that they're valued. There's a cultural piece of this that's really critically important. Money's important. Um, we have to, to pay people for what we ask them to do. But making sure that we have a culture where people can see themselves in the Coast Guard as they look up and also seeing a full future of opportunity for them. And that's what we're focused on. So quick, uh, quick reminder, I've got a couple more questions for the Admiral, and then we'll be opening it up to audience questions. If you have anything that, that has come up, feel free to, feel free to pop those in. So I um, want to transition a little bit away now from, from the manpower and talk about shore infrastructure. And this yeah. is one of the, the least fun things to talk about, but one of also the, the most important. So could you characterize basically the, the challenges facing Coast Guard's shore infrastructure and where is investment needed the most? Yeah, no, I appreciate the, the question. We are challenged with shoreside infrastructure, uh, but with the support of Congress and the administration, we're making progress. And it really, uh, I look at it in probably two primary categories. Uh, the first is making sure that we have the shoreside infrastructure in place for the arrival of new assets. And we've uh, taking a hard look at our processes and our planning to make sure that we sequence that well. So when we talk about those Coast Guard centers of gravity, uh, Newport, Charleston, Los Angeles, Long Beach, Seattle, Kodiak, and other places, uh, we need to make sure that we have the infrastructure in place to receive those new assets. And it's, it is the piers, it's the shoreside maintenance facilities, but it's also the galley, the medical equipment, the barracks, and things like that. Um, and then secondly, there is rehabilitating uh, the deteriorating shoreside infrastructure that's been in place and in the Coast Guard inventory for a lot of years. That infrastructure exists on the coast. It's in a coastal environment. It's wet, it's humid, it's hot, it's cold. It's, it's subject to all the environmental factors that take a toll on infrastructure. And so what we have to do is be uh, very clear-eyed about how we prioritize those investments. Uh, one of the things that we've been able, we, we've had great success in recently is the unfunded priorities list. You know, like every agency, we have a top line. We have to make trade-offs within that 
top line. Those are difficult decisions that we have to make. And because of that, there ends up being a backlog of things like shoreside infrastructure. Uh, and what we try and do is identify those and prioritize those on an underfunded priorities list and submit that to Congress. And we've had great success in doing that. What What is the, you, with this infrastructure that, that has lacked some investment in the past, is this making maintenance more expensive? What's, is there an actual cost that the Coast Guard incurs yeah, because of this? I, I think the, the cost is twofold. One, there's a, a cost to the workforce because if, if, if you want people to know they're valued, you've got to put them in facilities where they are safe, comfortable, and are, are fit for purpose. Uh, deteriorating infrastructure sends the wrong signal to the workforce. And, and then the second thing is we have to make sure that we have the shoreside facilities to, to support the operations uh, that the Coast Guard en engages in. And, and there's a cost to that. There's a cost to maintaining. There's a cost to sustaining. Uh, and infrastructure is expensive. Uh, but again, that's why we're leveraging the UPL, why I think you're going to see in the budget when you, you have a, a look at it, uh, probably more infrastructure initiatives in there than you, you've seen in the past. Um, and uh, so I, I think we're hopeful. We're, we're on a good trajectory, but um, obviously the more infrastructure support we get, I think the better it's going to be for frontline Coast Guard operations and better for our people. So in the unfunded priorities list you mentioned, there's there's one really big item for four additional uh, fast response cutters. Could, and specifically in there, it's mentioned that they're envisioned for Indo-Pacific. Could you just elaborate on, on the, the thinking of those four additional a ships? Absolutely. So we talked, your first question was about where is there a growing demand for the Coast Guard? Well, one of the areas is the Indo-Pacific. Uh, again, it's about our unique authorities, our capabilities, and our partnerships. We have very close partnerships with a lot of Pacific Island nations and Pacific countries. And their greatest national security threats are things like overfishing or IUU fishing, um, response to humanitarian disasters, transnational organized crime. Um, and Coast Guard presence matters, as I said. And so if you want Coast Guard presence, you have to build it. Um, it's hard for us to reset or rebalance um, because we have so many demands on Coast Guard service. So if we're going to be present in a particular region, we need to make sure that we build the capability to have that presence. And the four fast response cutters that were identified in the UPL uh, are part of that initiative. Uh, we understand that there's a growing demand in the Indo-Pacific. We'd like to meet that demand. We see great value in what we provide uh, in the Indo-Pacific region. I think we're a unique uh, uh, element of national security, um, and we complement what DOD is doing, but in a, in a different way. And, uh, but in order to meet that growing demand, we need to build that capability. So we'd love to include everyone else in, in this conversation as well. So I think we will we'll transition to questions from the audience now. There's, keep, keep sending them in if, if more come, come to mind. And for anyone in person, again, just raise your hand and, and we'll get you a note card to to submit one. So my, my colleague JV has has some queued up. Yeah, thanks, James. Uh, Admiral Poulin, thank you. Uh, earlier you mentioned um, uh, your mission challenges, and one of the areas that came up in uh, this forum of online questions was migration, human migration. 
and where that fits in, in the portfolio of challenges you're facing compared to something like search and rescue, for example. Could you talk about that? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Uh, we're seeing um, a near historic uh, rate of irregular maritime migration, especially from Haiti and, and Cuba. We're not in a mass migration, so let me make that, that clear. But there is a sustained high rate of, of flow from both of those countries. And um, you mentioned, you suggested there's a distinction between this mission and, and search and rescue. This is a life-saving mission. I want to make that clear. This is a humanitarian life-saving mission. I understand that there's a maritime border security component to it, uh, but we are saving lives by being in the Florida Straits, in the Mona Pass, and other areas around Cuba and Haiti uh, to save people uh, from, uh, you know, one of the most hostile environments on the planet, you know, and that's, that's the ocean. Uh, so that's how we look at it. Um, uh, it's a challenge. Um, but again, we've just had to look at this as a balance of, of how we allocate forces. Uh, but this is going to remain a priority for us uh, because it's about life saving. Fantastic, sir. So I uh, collected a couple of questions from the audience earlier. Uh, could you comment on the legal challenge made by Eastern Shipbuilding over the offshore patrol cutter contract switching to install? Yeah, so I, I'm not going to get into the legal issues. Uh, we'll see where that goes. We'll have to wait for those determinations and we'll uh, react accordingly. Um, I, I will say this. I, I've been on Argus very recently. It's going to be an incredible ship that Eastern's producing. Um, I'm excited about it. Uh, I hope we get it in the water later this summer and then uh, we get it delivered to the Coast Guard as, as soon as possible. A 360-foot ship that has incredible crew habitability and it's going to have incredible uh, capability for our Coast Guard as well. Um, and I, I saw uh, the second and third OPCs being constructed when I was down there in various states of construction. I think it's going to be a good ship for us. Um, but through uh, the acquisition processes and uh, some prior determinations that we made with respect to Eastern, we recompeted the contract and um, we made the decision that we thought was appropriate for the uh, phase two. Sir, do you see that challenge um, slowing down the delivery of the, of, of the ship? We're focused on producing the four offshore patrol cutters that are underway at Eastern right now. That's our focus. Uh, we have not been stayed from continuing our work with Austell, so that's progressing. Um, and then, as I said, we'll just adjust to whatever the legal decisions are. But um, I, I think this is going to be an incredible ship. I'm focused on the platform. And I'm focused on trying to get that capability into the Coast Guard as soon as possible. Thank you, sir. Uh, two questions, uh, both dealing with narcotics. Uh, how does the U.S. Coast Guard fit in the counter-opioid prob uh, problem? Um, yes, Coast Guard is always interdicting narcotics in the littorals, but is there anything distinctive about fentanyl or other super dangerous synthetics? Um, so fentanyl itself is not a maritime interdiction issue because the precursors largely come into Mexico and the fentanyl is synthesized in Mexico and shipped across the land border. So as context, I'll, I'll just lay that out there. However, however, um, a lot of the organizations that are engaged in fentanyl production and trafficking 
are the same transnational criminal organizations that are involved in other illegal activity, whether that's cocaine smuggling, whether it's human trafficking. So by us addressing transnational organized crime in the maritime environment through our efforts, I think we are addressing those organized criminal elements that are involved in, in fentanyl. Uh, secondly, um, cocaine tends to be a delivery vehicle for a lot of the fentanyl that's being ingested. And so I don't think it's necessarily easy to separate fentanyl from, from cocaine. I think they are interrelated issues from a transnational criminal standpoint, I think also from a health issue. And so we're going to keep the press on um, what we're doing in, in the counter-narcotics world. What, what we're, we're all in on that mission. We remain all in on that mission. Um, as you may know, uh, Joint Interagency Task Force West uh, in Hawaii has a Coast Guard flag officer as a director. And one of their focuses on tracking the precursor materials, working with other partner nations uh, to try and get greater visibility and awareness on uh, what often is perceived as legitimate cargo, uh, but ends up being illicit cargo. Um, but with respect to the, uh, the efforts in the Eastern uh, Pacific and the Caribbean, uh, we're going to continue to keep the press on transnational organized crime in those regions. Oh, fantastic. Uh, just a follow-up to that uh, with narcotics that are being moved uh, across the oceans. Uh, you've got to be getting a ton of intel hits and, and notifications on those uh, those movements. Do you feel you have the assets required to cover uh, that, 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 that threat? That's why we're building the offshore patrol cutter. Uh, it's going to be a game changer for us. And when we deploy the national security cutter down into, into uh, the counter-drug mission, we have a higher rate of success because we're deploying a, a more complete force package. You know, we're, we're deploying a cutter that has uh, unmanned aerial system on board. We're deploying a cutter that has much more, much more technological capability, uh, greater sensor packages on board, and can take a more um, comprehensive look at the domain and the rates of flow and the trends and has the ability to do those deeper analytics. So we see a much higher success with a national security cutter. I think once we deploy the offshore patrol cutter, we're going to see the very same thing. Uh, the ability to leverage the technological capabilities of that asset uh, and get greater interdiction rates. Just a quick shift away from that, sir. Uh, you talked earlier about the, the Arctic. Um, uh, what is the threat level in your mind uh, from Russia and China and the Arctic? I think the best way for me to address that is we're concerned about any malign activity um, in any maritime environment. It, we need to make sure that the oceans remain free and open and uh, that they are used for legitimate and lawful purposes. And that extends to the Arctic, that extends to any other region of the oceans. And uh, I, I, we represent good maritime governance. Uh, that's in our DNA. I think that's what we project. I think that's what partner nations find attractive about working with the Coast Guard, is our commitment to that rules-based rules order. And in order to, to do that, we need to be present. And uh, our presence in the Arctic is strategically important. It's important for us. I think it's important for other Arctic nations. Um, and I think it's just important from a geostrategic perspective. Admiral Fagan uh, mentioned the new cyber response teams in our state of the Coast Guard address. 
Uh, will those teams be focused on port security or protecting critical infrastructure, a mixture of the two? Could you talk about that? Yeah, so our uh, cyber strategy has three different lines of effort. Uh, the first is to um, protect our own systems. So first and foremost, we've got to be focused on protecting uh, our networks. The second element is to ensure the cybersecurity of the maritime domain, and that's focused on vessels and facilities primarily. Now, a lot of that responsibility falls to the owners and operators of those facilities. They have primary responsibility. We put out guidance um, to the owners and operators uh, to improve their security plans, to incorporate cyber as part of their security plans. Um, and then the third element is to look at cyber as an operating domain, much like we look at air or, or the sea. It's a domain, and we need to be present in that domain and use our cyber operators to, to work in that domain to produce the appropriate effects. Um, so we're building that capability. We're, we're very well nested with U.S. Cyber Command. We have Coast Guard personnel that support both NSA and U.S. Cyber Command. And I think we're, we're an important component of that. Uh, yes, our focus will be on continuing to improve cybersecurity in the maritime domain. Um, and our cyber protection teams uh, will be an important element in that uh, to work with industry where appropriate, um, to uh, leverage their capability when necessary, uh, and to work holistically uh, with uh, DHS through CISA and with U.S. Cyber Command as well. Fantastic. As you contend with both staffing challenges and the need to be present in more places around the globe, how are you thinking about unmanned systems and their ability to help you address those challenges? We're about to uh, sign out an unmanned systems strategy. I'm excited about it. Uh, we're deploying the unmanned systems on our national security cutters. We need to continue to build that capability to provide a persistent presence. Uh, it's part about building maritime domain awareness, uh, which is fundamental. Um, we're also looking at leveraging uh, the capability that is out there in the private sector. A sail drone, for example, has some incredible capability, and we want to leverage uh, sail drone uh, this year, and we plan to do that. Uh, so we need to continue to build uh, our uh, IQ on unmanned systems, and we need to leverage that, that capability. If I could jump in re real quick, actually, ask a quick follow-up. Um, the, you know, unmanned systems like Scan Eagle, for example, yep. it, re it really increase the, uh, the range that, that the cutters have and are able to collect that much more intelligence. Is that factoring in to the force design that, that the Coast Guard's building out to the more modern platforms have more modern unmanned and thus are more capable? It, it, it is. I, I mentioned before that we have uh, greater success with the national security cutters that are deployed down in the transit zone uh, because we use a force packaging concept. And I think unmanned systems are an essential part of uh, that force packaging. So we need to continue to leverage uh, them, and we will. Uh, and that's part about building uh, a new Coast Guard. You know, uh, Commandant has said tomorrow looks different, and so will we. And this is part of us looking different and employing new techniques uh, to address the greatest maritime threats. I, I will say this as well, uh, that we have a close partnership with CBP, and we work with them in the development of a broader DHS unmanned program. Great, sir. 
Um, Philip Basel uh, said he heard the rationale for lowering recruiting standards to match that of the other services. What do you expect to be the long-term impacts on both the current and future Coast Guard force by moving to lower standards? Yeah, so I, I disagree that we're lowering standards. We're aligning standards with the other military services. So I want to uh, correct any assumption that we're lowering standards. The quality of people that we are getting into all the military services is high. And uh, as I said at the outset, if I wasn't clear there, it's inspiring to meet these young women and men. Uh, so please don't take my comments as suggesting that we're lowering standards. We're not. Our standards are still high, and we're still getting great Americans to serve in our armed forces. Great, sir. Uh, this goes back to the Arctic. Uh, two new nuclear-powered Russian icebreakers will be operational within the next two years. How will this affect Russia's presence in the Arctic? I'm focused on U.S. presence in the Arctic and building our capability. Um, we haven't built a heavy icebreaker in the United States since the 70s. You mentioned it. It's a complicated ship. When you look at the offshore patrol cutter, it's got about 17 segments to it. When you look at the polar security cutter, it's 85. So it is a very complex and complicated ship. So we have to be very deliberate with how we build it and deploy it, and, and we're doing that. Um, and uh, I, I'm excited about where we're going with the polar security cutter. I've talked with Bollinger, Mississippi about the cutter. I think they're enthused about it. Uh, they're fully committed to the program. Um, and I look forward to seeing that first one. Uh, or I look forward to us cutting steel, hopefully very soon. Does the Coast Guard intend to increase its freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea and other places to support the rules-based international order? We will deploy uh, in support of U.S. interests around the globe, including in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, when you think of freedom of navigation, you're usually talking about a DOD program. Uh, if there's a need for the Coast Guard to support that, um, uh, then we will have those discussions. Uh, but our commitment is to operate uh, freely under the rules-based order, under customary international law, and we will continue to do that. Um, we will work with uh, both partner nations and we'll work with our other sea uh, services. I think that's, you know, the uh, uh, Tri-Service Maritime Strategy was uh, kind of a hallmark document when you talk about advantage at sea, and I think that uh, shows that we are a vital element of uh, the sea services and we provide a, a unique capability, and that includes uh, the ability to operate in uh, many different areas of the world. So I want to address the freedom of navigation issue directly. I'll just say that our commitment is to operate uh, freely and openly uh, under a customary international law. I believe we have time for one one last question, then we'll move to closing remarks. Okay, this is uh, along those same lines, and I know that this will be a tough one for you to address. But how, um, when you are working in a foreign location, say Taiwan, uh, how does your mission change if it was uh, that island was to come under attack? Again, my, my response is, is the same. We are focused on working with partner nations to improve the rule-based order to ensure good maritime governance. Uh, we will continue to do that. We will continue to do that around the globe, and we will try and respond to partners' needs when they ask and they desire a Coast Guard presence. 
Great, sir. Do you want to? Uh, yeah, thank, thank you for everyone who submitted a question. And now, Admiral, if you'd like to make a, some closing comments and wrap it up. Well, I, I just appreciate the opportunity to be here to talk about the Coast Guard. Um, when Admiral Fagan took over, uh, we sat down and we thought hard about what a Coast Guard strategy uh, should look like as we uh, thought about the future. And the strategy is based on a lot of dynamic pressures uh, on the Coast Guard. There are economic pressures, there are geopolitical pressures, there are climate factors, there are technological changes that are happening, uh, both uh, in private industry and maybe in particular with, with the maritime industry. And we realized that tomorrow looks different and, and so will we. And the Commandant said, we need to embark on three primary lines of effort. We need to transform our total workforce because people are our number one asset. Um, and they are our greatest capability. So we're working on both the recruitment and retention piece to make sure that we have uh, the kind of Coast Guard that people want to serve in and that can continue to deliver mission excellence anytime, anywhere for the nation. The second thing Admiral Fagan directed us to do is we need to sharpen our competitive edge. We need to leverage technology. We need to leverage machine learning, AI. We need to get better on data analytics because we need to be a more efficient Coast Guard and a safer Coast Guard. And being able to leverage data and understand data helps us buy down risk. And the third tenet, she said, is uh, we need to advance mission excellence. We need to build those new Coast Guard capabilities. We need to invest in shoreside infrastructure. We need to invest in crew habitability. We need to invest in our ability to uh, be an agile Coast Guard that adjusts to the changing dynamics in the mission space. And I think we're doing that. I'm excited about where we're going. I think we've got a lot of initiatives, uh, some that we've already accomplished, some that are going to take us a little bit of time. Uh, but uh, I'm really excited about where we're going in the Coast Guard. The thing that excites me the most is uh, when I get to engage with young Coast Guard men and women that are out there doing the hard work of the nation. Uh, I'm very proud and uh, to sit here and represent them. And I consider it an incredible honor uh, to wear this uniform uh, as a reflection of their hard work and their commitment. Thank you. And Admiral. Thank you so much for taking the time to come speak to us today. And I think this, this concludes our program. Thank you all for joining us.